0: We're going to continue our study in Nehemiah, and we're fastly approaching the end of this book. And we're going to turn our attention to the 11th chapter this evening. And hence, if you have a Bible, I'd ask if you'd open it to Nehemiah chapter 11. If you take a a quick glance through the 36 verses of this chapter you will quickly discover that this is one of those chapters that is full of hard-to-pronounce names of both individuals, families, and towns. This is the fourth such list in this particular book, and there is one more in the following chapter. In the third chapter, we have a record of those who worked on the walls. Chapter seven documents those who returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Chapter ten is a record of those who sign the covenant before the Lord. Chapter twelve is a list of priests and Levites, and chapter eleven. Now, our text lists those residents who lived in the rebuilt city. Now, these lengthy lists are often hard plowing in our Bible readings, aren't they? You now, I'm sure we often you know, skip these passages, for I know I was tempted to do that this evening. You know, but whenever I come to a genealogy in my Bible reading or my preaching, you know, the Holy Spirit always seems to brand on my heart, 2 Timothy 3.16. Brandon, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And if that's not enough, Romans 15.4... For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. And with those verses convicting me, I lower the implement and start ploughing the dirt. And inevitably, the Lord teaches me something. And I trust that will be the case this evening. Now this 11th chapter breaks up into uh, two parts. The first 24 verses identify they who lived within the city. And verse 25, to the end of the chapter, identify the people who lived in the surrounding villages. Now, for both of our sakes, I want to read just the first two verses. For pronunciation, certainly not a gift that I possess. So, Nehemiah chapter 11, and let's read from verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem, The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Amen. The title for the sermon this evening is A City Needs People. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. For this opportunity that we have to gather in this simple way this, morning, uh, this evening. rather, uh, Father, we live in a world where there is uh, much uncertainty. But Father, we do thank you for the certainty of your word. Father, thank you that you have spoken to us. And that all scripture is inspired and it is profitable. And Father, we do pray that, that your word would speak to our hearts this evening. For we ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You now imagine being in a city and there was absolutely no people. This almost sounds like a script to a horror movie. The infrastructure is there, buildings, roads, bridges, and yet the population is completely absent. There is a, a spooky silence, an absence of activity, a lingering loneliness imagine walking down George Street Sydney, the lovely buildings on the left and the right and yet you are the only person to be seen you continue down to Circular Quay, you look up at the famous bridge and there is no cars you walk around the harbour, you fix your gaze upon the opera house and yet still there is no other human being this would be quite eerie have you, have you ever been to a particular place and it just didn't feel right? It, it felt freaky, somewhat scary. This is how I envision a city with no people. But a city with no population would not only be frightening, but also futile What would be the point of the buildings, the shops, the cafes, the landmarks, the roads without people to use and enjoy them? It seems rather pointless for a city needs people. And this is the next problem in a very long line of problems that Nehemiah has to confront. The temple had been rebuilt, the walls were now completed and yet something was still missing and that was... A populace. But the rebuilding work had been supported enthusiastically. And yet there was no eagerness to live in the city. The people had contributed in the construction, but few had relocated. And there was now a striking silence in the streets. And this problem is revealed in Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 4, which says, Now the city was large and great. But the people were few therein, and the houses were not built And this was a problem. For a city is much more than walls, gates, and a temple. A city is the people. The walls and the temple had not been rebuilt to simply be admired, but for the benefit of the population. In fact, this whole work was about the people, not the walls. Nehemiah had to address the problem of population. And this is recorded in the chapter before us. So let's examine the performing of the populating process. I think a good place to begin is by asking uh, two questions. So number one, why does this matter? Or does it really matter if the people did not live in the city? Is this really that important. On a purely practical level, having people was a necessity to defend the city. It would be incredibly vulnerable without a population to defend it. The gates and the watchtower would be useless if there was no one to man it. So on a practical level, this is the primary reason dictating the requirement to repopulate. But there is a greater reason And that is that a thriving city and a thriving people were a necessity for the coming Messiah. This holy city couldn't be some desolate place, but rather it had to be a thriving city with a strong population. And this is where Nehemiah fits into the meta-narrative or the big picture of the Bible. For it it records the rebuilding of both the city and the people. Both necessities for the Messiah. As one writer put it, God had great things in store for Jerusalem, but one day his son would walk the city streets, teach in the temple, and die outside the city walls. This is why it required a people. And this leads to a a second question. Why were the people hesitant? Wouldn't it make sense to immediately Relocate? Or why the hesitation? Isn't the city the place to be? Now, one author had these uh, helpful insights in explaining the hesitation, and I've I put it in your notes. It's a lengthy quote. He said, "In the event of an attack, Jerusalem would be a particularly dangerous place in which to live. A farmer living in reasonable proximity to the city might have his crops plundered and his herds driven off." But he and his family could, in all probability, escape with their lives by hiding from the invaders. In a similar way, people living in the outlying towns would be able to hide in the hills as soon as a band of marauders came into their vicinity. Not so with living in Jerusalem. Or the capital would become the focal point of an attack. Furthermore, those residing in the city found it to be a post of labour as well as danger. The fortifications required constant guarding and this imposed additional responsibilities on the citizenry. Excuse my daughter. Hmm. So I think we can see why there was hesitation. For it was a dangerous place to reside. This would be the place the enemies would target. And it also required one to be involved. It took much effort to live in the city. And also one may be forced to leave the land they occupied and also their occupation to make this relocation a possibility. And in light of these difficulties that had resulted in an absence of people dwelling in the city, how did Nehemiah go about confronting this particular problem? And this is spelt out in the first two verses. So we see from verse 1 that it is determined that one-tenth, or a tithe of the people were going to live in the city. And if my mathematics is correct, throughout this list of names, some numbers are included. And it seems that 3,044 people came and lived in the city. And this could probably be at least tripled when we allow for women and children. So there probably would have been around about 10,000 people chosen to come and live in the city. Before we see the process of determining how one would come in, I want to draw your attention to the first phrase of verse 1, where it says, And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. Here we have the leaders, no doubt including Nehemiah setting the example. He would not ask for something to be done that he himself was not willing to do. There was no hypocrisy in his leadership. He's out the front leading by example. And that's a wonderful pattern for all leaders to follow in whatever sphere we may lead, whether in the home, in the workplace, or in the church. A good and godly leader will set the example, will illustrate what is required. The life and example of a leader should not paint on the canvas a, a picture that is contrary to the message they are communicating or the standards they are demanding. You know, with the leaders leading the way, it is decided that lots would be cast to determine who would accompany the leaders in the holy city. These lots could have been sticks of various lengths, so you know, you draw the short straw. They might be flat stones like coins or some kind of dice. The exact nature is unknown. The closest modern practice I could think of is probably flipping a coin. But the question is, why cast lots? In this particular scenario, it could refer to two things. So it might just be a chance procedure. People were completely and utterly unwilling to do this, so this was developed as the fairest way to determine the unfortunate families who would be forced to relocate. That's one option. Or this could be a method used to determine the will of God for this particular situation, and that's the view that I favour. There are many instances in the Bible where the casting of lots is practiced to determine the will of God. It's seen in the book of Joshua, when they divided the land. It was practiced to determine the scapegoat. If you remember the Day of Atonement, there's two goats, and the lot would fall on one goat. And also, the story of Jonah, when he was on the ship. Lots were cast, and Jonah was elected as the one to be thrown overboard. You know, this practice of casting lots was never condemned by the Lord. In fact, Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So this was a method to determine divine direction. It acted as a compass or a map. But there's a very... A Important aside that we must understand that you know, this is not a practice that we should undertake to determine God's will. For we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and we have the completed canon of scripture. And hence we can expect God to make his will known through his word by the guidance of the spirits you know, rather than sticks or stones. So, you know, don't go home and roll the dice to see what you should do tomorrow tomorrow. Because that's gambling, really. But but nevertheless, in this particular dispensation of time, the casting of lots was practiced. And in this specific scenario, it determined who would move into the city. So this was the process in determining the one-tenth. In verse 2, we are informed that people willingly offered themselves... Now, this could mean that they who were elected by the lot willingly submitted to that decision. Okay, you chose me, I will go. Or, it could refer to a group who moved to the city before the casting of the lot of their own accord. They saw the need and they went. Or it could be a reference to a group who, after the lot had been cast, decided that they would still move to the city despite the lot not falling on them. Now, however you want to interpret it, what I believe it reveals is a willingness to submit to the will of God. And there is a desire to meet the need that was present. They saw the need, knew that they could feel the need, and they did something about it. And this is a great example for you and I to follow as we strive to serve Christ. We need to be willing to submit to the will of God. No matter what the cost may be, remembering that for these people, relocation would cost them significantly. Would we be willing to do that, to to relocate if God directed? And also, there's a willingness to meet the obvious need. And how often we search and wonder what God's will is, and we kind of walk around like a blind man, and often it's right in front of us. Meet the need that, that's right there. You know, I read a book once about God's will and the title was Just Do Something. And I think that's often good advice for us. You know, just serve where there is a need because there's always a need. Now, having determined who would move We then have a list of names recorded. And and how wonderful this must have been for these people to have their names recorded in Scripture forever. That thousands of years on, tonight we see their names. And I view this list as really an expression of appreciation. Nehemiah appreciates what they did. And I would go as far to say that the Lord appreciates what they did. As before mentioned, this long list breaks into two parts. Verse 1 to 24, people who lived in the city. Verse 25 to 36, they who lived in the surrounding villages. And within the list of they who lived in the city, we can break it up into five groups. There's the children of Benjamin, the children of Judah, the priests, the Levites, and the temple staff. So in verses 4 through to 9, we have the two chief tribes identified who repopulated the city. And they are Judah and Benjamin. And this doesn't really surprise us, for Jerusalem was located within the bounds of these two tribes... And it was also these two who formed the southern kingdom. And when the kingdom split in two. Something interesting that I want to point out is that in verses 4 and 6, they that are from the tribe of Judah are identified as the children of Perez. Perez was one of the sons of Judah. And these people in the city came from this particular line. And that's fascinating because according to Matthew 1, 3, Jesus also came from the line of Perez. You know, there is different spelling, but it's the same line. So these people who returned were in the same line as Christ. In verse 10 down to verse 14, the priests are identified. Their job description is revealed in verse 12 as the work of the house. Of course, the house refers to uh, the temple. This was their task. Uh, The next group is found in verse 15 down to verse 18. And they were the Levites. And they were to assist the priests. Uh, Verse 16 says that they were responsible for the outward business of the temple. Uh, This would probably include maintenance and so forth. And in verse 17... Praying and thanksgiving were also identified as a part of their task. In verse 19 down to verse 24, we have listed other people who were involved in the work of the temple. The porters are listed in verse 19, and it is believed that their primary responsibility was to function as guards. And then from verse 25 down to verse 36 we have varying groups of people who remained in towns and villages around the city. And obviously their chief responsibility was agriculture. This is hinted at in verse 25 where it mentions the fields. And there are many famous places recorded in this list. So this is the fourth lengthy and complex list of hard-to-pronounce names in the book of Nehemiah. And, and this documents for us how the city was repopulated and who was involved in the repopulation. And their names are forever recorded in the word of God. Now, In our next study, we will begin to examine life within the city. But for tonight, I want to leave you with two thoughts of application. So number 1, you know, a lesson about present grace. Now as I considered this scene of the holy city now repopulated and rebuilt after the devastating destruction that had been unleashed punishing the wickedness of the people. You know, the glorious waters of the unmeasurable grace of God came flooding through my mind. The people didn't deserve another chance. Great was their wickedness. And yet the Lord generously and graciously reestablished the people in the land. He was faithful in keeping His covenant and keeping His promises despite the people being completely undeserving. And as I pondered this, it's a picture of the wonderful grace that is bestowed upon us in salvation. We are all sinners by nature and by action. We are guilty of committing cosmic treason against the Creator. We deserve the full wrath of God to be unleashed upon us. That's the just punishment. And yet God in His grace has provided a way for sinners to be saved. You know, despite we being completely undeserving, and that is a glorious thought, that God would save a wretched man like me. You know, it truly is amazing grace. We do not deserve salvation, and yet this glorious gift has been given to all who believe. We have been saved from our captivity to sin, re- released from Babylon, and we deserve none of this. And yet it's been graciously given to us. God was good and gracious to his people of the old covenant in bringing them out of captivity, rebuilding and repopulating the city. But beloved, we, we are the beneficiaries of far greater grace and goodness in Christ. And may we praise him for that. And the second point of application is a lesson about future grace you know we do not just benefit from God's grace in this life but we will be lavished in it for all eternity In the narrative before us the city and the walls have been rebuilt by man and now the city needed to be populated now Jesus Christ is also building a city it's called the new Jerusalem And it will be far more glorious and and spectacular than anything we can imagine. Far greater than the earthly Jerusalem rebuilt by Nehemiah. Our puny, finite minds can't comprehend the glorious beauty and wonder of this city. The Bible describes it as a large city. The walls will be made out of precious stone. The gates made out of pearl. The city built out of gold that is so pure. It it is clear. It it will be amazing. Nothing like we have ever seen. Picture the most glorious beauty you have ever seen. Times that by a thousand and you might just be getting close. And yet, despite all of this glorious beauty, all of this wonder, all of that will pale into insignificance, for Jesus will outshine it all. And, beloved, this glorious city also needs to be populated. And all who believe in Christ as Savior, this will be our eternal home. This is the glorious future that awaits you and it awaits me living in this glorious city with all of the saints throughout history and with our Lord Jesus Christ forever. This is graciously promised to those who believe. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait. We, We have a glorious future awaiting us. And this future hope is meant to aid and assist us through our time in this fallen world with our broken bodies. For as the hymn writer said, this world is not our home. And there is a time coming when we will be taken home. We will be glorified. No more sin, no more pain, no more weakness and frailties. And we will be fit to be residents in the new Jerusalem for all eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ. That is God's gracious gift to you and to me. This, beloved, is our future hope. Amen.